Robertson welcoming you to TV Confidential, radio talk show about television that will play part two of our conversation with Ed Asner later on in this hour. Ed Asner, the actor known around the world as Lou Grant on the Mary Tyler Moore Show and his own show, Lou Grant. Ed is about to launch a national tour of his two critically acclaimed plays, God Help Us and A Man and His Prostate. We'll find out if Ed will be coming to a city near you. We'll also talk about some of his other roles in film and television, including why his experience providing the voice of Carl Fredrickson in Pixar's Up was one of the most uplifting and meaningful experiences in Ed's entire acting career. We'll play part two of our conversation with Ed Asner later on in this hour. We'll be able to stay tuned for that. Joining us in our second hour will be our friend Lee Purcell. Lee Purcell, the actress all of you know from her appearances in such films as Big Wednesday, Valley Girl, Stir Crazy, Carol of the Bells, and Eddie Macon's Run. Lee, of course, co-starred with Kirk Douglas in Eddie Macon's Run. She was also the recipient of a wonderful letter that Kirk Douglas sent her earlier this year, just before he passed. We'll talk about that and more when Lee Purcell joins us in our second hour. We'll be able to stay tuned for that as well. In the meantime, Tony Figueroa and Donna Allen are with us as they bring us this week in TV history. Tony's segment, as always, brought to us by our friends at Story Salon, Southern California's longest-running, regularly-performing live storytelling ensemble. StorySalon.com, Facebook.com, forward slash Story Salon. This week, we will go back to February 27th, 2015, the day that Leonard Nimoy passed away at the age of 83. As you'll recall, we did a special segment of This Week in TV History that week devoted to Leonard Nimoy. We will play that for you right now. This was another one of those big deals. It yeah. seems uh, lately there's just been certain pieces of our childhood that have been going away. And this one, I think, even uh, surpasses most of those. I mean, all due respect to a lot of other people we've talked about, but we have literally grown up with this guy. Yeah. You are in our age group. Uh, you might have been born the year Star Trek first came on. You probably discovered the show in reruns. And when you're old enough to go to the movies on your own, you were starting to see all the movies. Mm -hmm. And then it went back to TV and movies. And it's, it's an amazing cycle that you could actually have spent the last 40-plus years, almost 50 now, and, and Star Trek was always a constant in your life. It could be the only one constant in your life, really. It's interesting to look at Nimoy's relationship with the show, as evidenced by the fact that uh, between 1975 and 1995, he published two books. Yes. The book in 75 was called I Am Not Spock. Uh, which was obviously, and, and, and he talks about you know some of the some of the struggles he had post Star Trek being defined by that one character. Twenty years later, after he'd established himself as as a director, and you know af obviously after the Star Trek franchise had resurrected itself as a successful movie franchise, he released another book called "I Am Spock." Which, which goes to show, if anything else, that people can change their mind. <laughs> well, yeah, I think he made a peace with that character and, and, and embraced it a, a certain way and was able to parlay what Spock gave his, you know, his career uh, into other things. And I think, yeah, he, he definitely made the most out of it. And uh, unlike somebody who, you know, really would try to cash in on it at every possible moment, I think he did 
uh, a lot of good stuff, you know, just banking on uh, being Mr. Spock. And when the Star Trek wave really exploded after the show went into syndication in the early 1970s and there began to be conventions and other opportunities for him, he would use those events. He would, he would uh, book himself on uh, college lecture tours and he would answer some questions about Star Trek, but he would, use, he would also use it as a vehicle to discuss other interests of himself, particularly interests of science. And uh, one of the clips I saw of him last week talked about how he updated that program frequently. So in, in a way, he was appeasing his following, but also using it as a vehicle so that, again, it, it showed that I'm not just this guy who played this TV character. I am a living, breathing person who has who, who has interest beyond the role that I play. And I feel that that is really respectful toward his fans and yet also respectful to himself as an artist. You know, to be able, okay, yes, I am Mr. Spock, but then uh, you, you look at the rest of his work post-Star Trek, yeah. every, everything else he did in addition to that. Man had a good career. Man had a very good career. You know, it's interesting, you bring up his career post-Star Trek and... I just thought of this before I contacted you guys. And by the way, Tony and Donna are normally with me in the studio, but because this is sort of an impromptu edition of the program today, they're participating via Skype. So just before I Skyped you both, I was thinking, I, if, if I remember correctly, when he joined Mission Impossible, which, uh, which was the first thing he did after Star Trek was canceled, because they were both produced on the Paramount lot, and I believe he went, he went immediately from Star Trek to Mission Impossible. If I remember correctly, Mission Impossible was shown on Saturday nights at the time. So Saturday nights at 10 following the comedy block on, on, on CBS. And because it was a Saturday night, I got to stay up late, even though I was only six or seven years old. And I remember him first as Paris on Mission Impossible, then as Spock second. Huh. Yeah. Well, just because you are of your age, so you probably don't... Do you remember when Star Trek was first run? I remember when Star Trek was first run. Um, I don't remember watching it because I would have been... I mean, it, it premiered 66. I would have been two. It ended June of 69. I would have been five. I may have watched it... Um, I think it was on Friday nights the last year it was on NBC. I may have watched it once, but I, I, I particularly remember watching him on Mission Impossible when it aired on Saturday nights. And then, and then within a couple of years, Channel 2, uh, the KTVU affiliate uh, up in San Francisco, showed Star Trek uh, like from six to seven. And I watched it, I didn't, but I didn't watch it religiously. Uh, and I, th I think I'm basically, you know, in the same age group, I think I remember the Star Trek credits, you know, which is what really little kids remember. Sure, Space the Final Frontier. Exactly. Yeah. But I remember, let's see, Cincinnati, Channel 5, from 5 to 6, so when it went into syndication, that's when I discovered it, that's when I began to appreciate it. And with you also, I remember Leonard Nimoy's Mission Impossible episodes, which were quite good. That was a good good show, and he fit into the ensemble very, very well, as I remember. And as I understand, Donna, he appreciated the fact that the I mean he I mean, he replaced Martin Landau as the resident master of disguise. 
Okay, and, and which shoes so, to fill. Yeah, yeah. And so it was a good it was a good vehicle for him because it could he could play other characters and you know, often use makeup and disguises to distinguish himself from Mr. Spock, which uh, at least by certainly by the time he ended his uh, his two year stay on Mission Impossible, he was he would have been competing against himself because that's when Star Trek would have been first airing in syndication on local stations. Well, that, yeah, that makes sense. Why the timeline in your head is is going in that direction? I remember Star Trek as something that my older brother was really into and could not be bothered when it was on. <laughs> and I, you know, because when it first started in syndicate, I was still, I didn't quite get it yet. So yeah. I didn't understand, you know, and I think part of it was there was a lot of 60s elements to it too. So I didn't understand that they were in the 23rd century. But uh, when I was able to appreciate it, I remember the animated series. I do too. BC. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was, I thought, you know, I look at some of them now, it's very smartly done. Obviously, there were certain uh, moral lessons to play out, like in any other Star Trek story. Might have been a little bit simplified. Uh, some of them were kind of like uh, sequels to various uh, episodes. Like you saw the Tribbles again, you went to the amusement planet again. Uh, but, uh, you know, you got to know the characters there. And then, yeah, it was local uh, KTLA Channel 5. That used to have it on from five to six weeknights, and then later on it was a Saturday Sunday thing, and uh, you know all my friends would be watching the the syndicated version, and uh, then they would make a big event for the uh, the cage uh, or the menagerie. The menagerie, right? Uh, the the mena- origi- they made, the they put pilot. the two together as like a two hour movie block, so you could watch that, and then a little backstory, you know, with it as well. So you we you know we found out that this was actually pieces of the original pilot repurposed. We're talking about Leonard Nimoy along with Tony and Donna as part of a special edition of This Week in TV History. Going back on something you just mentioned uh, about uh, the animated Star Trek. You bring up a good point, and it dovetails with with, with a comment that Greg Airbar often makes when he discusses uh, animated shows, particularly animated shows by filmation, because Star Trek, the animated series, was done by filmation. Now, I know that among animated aficionados, filmation gets trashed a lot because the, the animation is, I, I've heard people say it's one step removed from like still animation. Uh, it's, it's certainly not as sophisticated and on the level of Hanna-Barbera, of Disney, of some of the other major cartoon production companies that were around at the time. But what Greg always points out uh, particularly about the anim- uh, about the filmation shows and Star Trek the animation series is a good animated series is a good example of this is that the filmation shows were very well written and they made an effort to tell a beginning middle and end story whether it was a 22 minute segment or in the case of filmation shows that had like short cartoons they would still make an effort to tell a beginning middle and end in a seven or eight minutes segment and you had the original voices as well right most of them anyway as a matter of fact going back to leonard nimoy i understand that originally the plan was just to use uh, shatner nimoy uh and deforest kelly with james doing doing all the other voices but nimoy said to roddenberry and to filmation you get the other 
cast members, George, Nichelle, you get them on board or I'm not doing the show. Sure. So, wow. And that, that, that kind of speaks to some of the other things I've, yeah. I've heard about Nimoy in that um, he, he could, well, on the one hand, he could be aloof and, and hard to get to know outside of his character. At the same time, he, he was looking out for other people and he did have a sense of, uh, he, had a, he had an integrity not only you know, to his character but to the show itself. And he felt that the animated show would not be authentic it would be doing a disservice to the fans unless you had all of the cast members aboard. Yes, Matt Lage was absolutely right. Yeah, I think, you know, and I've had this discussion, oddly enough, uh, a lot lately. There is a certain integrity that these characters have, and you have to respect that. And uh, if you don't do that, then you're not really respecting the fans. And I think a lot of people who handle the business aspect doesn't always appreciate that you have to respect the fans and, and their expectations of what you're doing as well. And uh, if they just see it as pushing product, then, you know, it's, it's going to suffer. It's not going to be as good. And then when you explain why they did it wrong, they don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> Tony Figueroa and Donna Allen are back with us via Skype for some more thoughts on Leonard Nimoy's career and his contributions to our culture above and beyond Star Trek. This particular segment originally aired in March 2015 as part of this week in TV history. As long as I have you both here, one of the stories that trended a lot, uh, particularly in the three to four day period after Nimoy passed, was uh, obviously all the cast members, they either took to social media to express their condolences. Walter Koenig wrote a very nice essay for Time Magazine in which he expressed you know, his thoughts on Leonard Nimoy. But Shatner took a lot of flack, and I think unjustly so, because he, uh, uh, Nimoy died on a Friday, and because, I believe, because of the Jewish tradition, it was, uh, you have to bury the body, I think, within 48 hours or something. Either 48 yeah, or 72. Yeah. Yeah. So the service was on a Sunday. I think, I think it was the following Sunday. Yes, it was. And Shatner was on the other side of the country doing a charity event for which he had been committed many months in advance and for which people had paid a lot of money on the basis that William Shatner was going to speak and perform at this thing. And so he had a little crisis, and, he, and as much as he wanted to be there for the service, he felt he had to honor his commitment to this charity event. And among a certain section of reactionaries, he got a lot of flack for that. It was David Gerald. I don't know if you guys saw this. David Gerald, who wrote The Trouble with Tribbles and, you know, long association with the, Star, with the original Star Trek, he basically spoke out for Shatner and said, look, you're doing the man a disservice I, I've known this man for 40 years. I know how terrible he feels that, that he would want to be there for, for Nimoy's funeral. And you have to understand that he made a commitment and it's, it would be unprofessional for him to do it because people paid money to see him. And, and if Nimoy were around, Nimoy would understand. I would agree wholeheartedly. I, I think, first of all, the guy is grieving. So to throw insults on social media at him is, is kicking him when he's down. And didn't William Shatner do which social media? I think uh, on Twitter, they he he shared stories. Yeah. He 
he basically, you know, eulogized them, you know, for the fans, which I thought was really cool. You know, he could have been very secluded if he wanted to. And uh, I believe his two daughters were at the service. Yeah. Uh, I agree with William Shatner's choice to honor his agreement. It was professional. He was already in Florida when it happened. Yeah. A lot of people were counting on seeing him. Exactly. As active as William Shatner is, remember, he's is he in his 80s now? He's 83. They're four days, they were born four days apart. And for him to jump on a plane and go and cross country, it's not as easy for uh, people who are younger. And I think we also have to remember that, yeah, we remember him, he's Captain Kirk, yeah. but yeah, it's, remember you know, that little detail as you well. Know, uh, the Priceline negotiator couldn't, you know, arrange it. <laughs> and uh, that's, I'm surprised nobody went there. Yeah. And isn't, wasn't the service on Sunday the private family memorial? Yes. Yes, the public memorial will be later on, and I'm sure well attended yeah. by yeah. And, everyone. And, and, I, and including William Shatner, I would imagine. Including yeah. William Shatner. And, I mean, those of us, have, you know, at that our age group, we've been involved with the planning, preparing for things like this. And, you know, it's not an easy task, you know, to to coordinate something like this. And when you're dealing with the tradition that, you know, has to require, you know, a body to be in the ground within, you know, you know, three days, you know, that that even makes it more, you know, daunting to try to coordinate that. So, yeah, uh, especially the the New York Daily News with the headline Captain Jerk. I yeah, thought well, that was so uncalled for. I had uh, taken a graphic from Star Trek VI with the, you know, I love Spock's closing line in that movie. You know, if I were human, I believe my response would be, go to hell. Yes. <laughs> but if I were human. And I had put that quote on uh, on a still from that scene in that movie. Yeah. And, you know, I, I sent that over to the uh, New York uh, Daily News along a few other places in, in response to the, the bad-mouthing of, of Shatner for that, which I thought was totally uncalled for. And I think, you know, once in a while, if, if Shatner says something or does something that deserves, uh, you know, a little, let's well, say, critical assessment, you know, then fine, well, but like, not this. Like, well, like, like, for example, he directed Star Trek V, Shatner did, and that, and that, that was not a very good movie because Shatner's not a very good director, I don't think. But whereas Leonard Nimoy, he directed... Cause we, we three talked, and four. He directed yeah. three and four, both of which are considered among the best of the Star Trek movies. Certainly the Voyage Home. I love the Voyage Home. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, you get to see San Francisco uh, in the Voyage Home. And we'll talk some more about Star Trek IV, the Voyage Home, as we continue our look at this week in TV history right after this. Dr. Cooper. <laughs> Dr. Cooper. <laughs> Is someone there? Down here, on your desk. <laughs> Spock? I need to speak with you. Fascinating. <laughs> the only logical explanation is that this is a dream. It is not the only logical explanation. For example, you could be hallucinating after being hit on the head by, say, a coconut. <laughs> Was I hit on the head by a coconut? I'm not going to dignify that with a response. Become an advertiser or underwriter of TV Confidential and let our brand help promote your brand. To find out more, 
Go to televisionconfidential.com slash advertise. Are you from California, Illinois, New York, Georgia, or any of the other 39 states that charge state income tax? Does your state claim you owe them any amount of back taxes? Or have you not filed in years? Is your heart pounding because you know they're wrong or you just don't have the money? Don't fight the state income tax board alone. The tax doctor is here to help you. The state is much more aggressive than the IRS in collecting taxes. They have the power to take your home, your car, your drive and business licenses, even garnish your wages, freeze your bank accounts, and go after your spouse. Solve all your income tax problems permanently and keep more of your hard-earned money. Make this 100% guaranteed risk-free call right now. 800-649-0142. 800-649-0142. That's 800-649-0142. Story Salon is Los Angeles' longest-running storytelling venue. We have live shows every Wednesday in Studio City, as well as solo shows, podcasts, CDs, and several books. Los Angeles Daily News calls Story Salon gemstones of narrative, something new, funny, astonishing. Sunset Magazine says, tales tall, tragic, and tantalizing. All of this makes Story Salon one of the most eclectic entertainment experiences available. You can learn more about us by going to our Facebook page or by visiting our website at www.storysalon.com. Accredited by Guinness World Records, welcome to Archival Television Audio, Incorporated. A peerless TV soundtrack archive preserving the audio from television's first three decades, the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, the golden and silver age of television. For more information, go to atvaudio.com. Ed Robertson, author friend Donna Allen Figueroa, who I understand has a new book out. Yes, it's entitled Fall Again Beginnings. It's the first part of a four-part contemporary romantic series a set against the background of working actors. Something that you know a, little, a thing or two well, about. Well, you write what you know, and I have been working in the business for several years. It is not necessarily autobiographical, but it's based on... Sure, many of the experiences that the actors in my book have, many have happened to me, many have happened to friends of mine. It's not if you're looking for... Valley of the Dolls, it's not, it's grounded in reality. It is grounded in reality, and it's the first in a series. Yes. Called the Fall Again series. Fall Again. Which is available as a paperback as well as an ebook and in Kindle at fallagainseries.com. Hi, this is Walter Koenig, and you're listening to TV Confidential. Ed Roberts, with a reminder that we will play part two of our conversation with Ed. Asner later on in this hour. We hope you'll stay tuned for that. In the meantime, Tony Figueroa and Donna Allen are with us as part of this week in TV history. We are replaying a segment that originally aired in March 2015 as part of a special tribute to Leonard Nimoy. Leonard Nimoy passed away February 27, 2015 as part of this week in TV history. And as we went to break, Tony and Donna and I were beginning to talk about Nimoy's efforts as a director, including Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home. My favorite scene is the one where Shatner and I mean, Kirk and Spock are riding a muni bus. And, 
and it's a crowded Muni bus, and Kirk is a, Kirk has assimilated himself very easily to 20, 20th century culture, and he's, he he drops a few four letter words uh, in the bus, and Spock notices <laughs> that uh, Captain Kirk's uh, language has become much more colorful since they recently. You've been using a lot of colorful metaphors. Yes. Like double dumbass on you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, trying to explain, and it was all in the great literature was it Jacqueline Suzanne and, and Harold Robbins, you know, and Spock goes, ah, the giants. giants. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then the, the Vulcan nerve pinch on the punk rocker with the, you know, the uh, ghetto blaster playing was wonderful. I think what also makes. Uh, three and four, uh, I think, memorable amongst the fans is you are getting these characters who are so out of their element. You're not really seeing them at their best because they don't have the normal tools that they have, you know, when facing off whatever threat that they have facing. They are, you know, two two very cool fish-out-of-water stories for these characters who are, you know, larger-in-life figures in their own time, very heroic and, uh, you know, one when they're stealing the Enterprise and they're on their own to uh, get Spock and the other one when they're in a totally different time period. And also, I mean, a lot of credit has to go to DeForest Kelly for his portrayal, just his assessment of, you know, 1987 medicine. <laughs> <laughs> and, and there are people who are very critical of Western medicine, yeah. you know, even you know back then and even today that just go, yeah, he's right, yeah. You know, drilling holes in people's heads is pretty barbaric. You, uh, you bring up a very good point because, especially in, th- especially in four, each of the seven had a moment. Yes, and 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 I think that's why of the of the six featuring the original cast members, four stands out for a number of reasons. And and you also look at Chekhov on the USS Enterprise, which I understand was just coincidentally, in San Francisco, in, in, in Sausalito, mm-hmm. when they were making the movie, that wasn't an arrangement as far as I understand. That's a happy accident. It was a very happy accident. But, you know, you know the character of Chekhov, you love the character of Chekhov, and then you put this character, who's obviously Russian, in a time when, you know, the Cold War was going on. And, you know, of course, he's the one who's, you know, on board the USS Enterprise uh, you know, getting uh, like the photons from the uh, nuclear reactors. <laughs> and he's the one who gets caught. Of all of them, you know, the worst possible scenario would have been him. I mean, the, they should have just said, stay on the ship and don't talk. Uh, but, you know, that whole, that whole Cold War part playing out, and it's like, okay, you know this guy is a, is a member of the crew, and now you put him in this situation, and it's like, oh, yeah. yeah he's <laughs> the enemy, he, and we're afraid of him. Yeah, yeah it's and, and the way that uh, the intelligence officers were interrogating him. Uh, and, and he got to play it out like an Abbott and Costello routine. Uh, but it was it was very, very funny. But then you look at him and goes, of course he's a risky, you idiot. It, it, <laughs> it, that was very funny, right? Everybody had, yeah, I won't say the next line, but uh, everybody had their, their wonderful moments. Scotty and, uh, and, of course, Kirk and Spock, you know, and Spock trying to blend in. Yes. And, and the funny thing is... It just doesn't sound off, right when you say it, Spock. <laughs> yeah, it just, yeah, maybe you shouldn't try the colorful metaphors. Yes. Yeah, he got it right at the end, you know. Where's where's that power, Spock? One damn minute, Captain. Uh, but <laughs> he had so many wonderful, you know, and, and yeah, the other thing is the humor was played up so well. Yeah. 
with with those two and and uh, yeah, in those scenes where he's trying to you know get his brain back together and comprehend what was going on, and of course it has the other great moment. We need to get Chekhov. Is it is that the logical thing to do? No, but it's the human thing to do. Yeah. And I remember the uh, audience just bursting in applause when he says that. You know that he he gets it, and uh, it's uh, you know it's just wonderful to see those characters. And then I think people were thrilled because it did have, you know, a, not only did they save Earth by bringing back the whales, you know, they uh, they got a ship again and uh, they could launch a whole new series of, you know, missions. Which they did. Any final thoughts, you two, on Leonard Nimoy or the legacy of Star Trek or all of the above? For me, something that was not Star Trek related but was related to Leonard Nimoy's love of science I always loved the series In Search Of. Yes. Yes, that, that's got, that, that has trended a lot over the last few days. And I think Joseph Doherty posted uh, one of the sites. It just it said it's so beautiful, so, so beautifully. Uh, as an actor, you go into an audition, you book the job, you do the work, and time takes care of the rest. I just yeah, think that's, that's a simple, profound statement, and it applies so beautifully to Leonard Nimoy. Uh, and I, you know, just think, uh, imagine just the voice uh, that he had that he used for narration. So, I mean, a lot of In Search of was his narration. I mean, you would see him on camera uh, also, but just how he narrated uh, that, uh, how, you know, you could go to a planetarium and the voice that you hear over the speaker is Leonard Nimoy mm -hmm. uh, doing things with science, uh, trying to get people, you know, interested in different aspects to have him being the voice that would be narrating. And then, again, going back to uh, the comedy aspects, he, uh, his his voiceover of uh, that hysterical Simpsons episode with the monorail, <laughs> which was written by Conan O'Brien, yeah. uh, which uh, also there was a clip of that. That was John Stewart's moment of zen, which was, you know, and the fact that he just played it straight, and uh, it was very, very funny. And it was probably one of the most surreal Simpsons episodes yeah. uh, that they had. And then uh, later on, he was uh, the voice of uh, Tiny Spock in uh, Big Bang Big Theory. Bang <laughs> I just saw that. It was very, very funny. And, yeah, that one, uh, I made that a, a mental sorbet uh, when I got the news that he had he had died. And, uh, you know, it was just very funny. And, again, it's it's... Basically, you know, that voice, you know, doing those things. So uh, he's been able to parlay that into ways to uh, entertain us, educate us. And I think if we could distill what Gene Roddenberry's vision was, I think he really was, of, of all the cast members, uh, the most successful in kind of pushing, you know, the idea of thinking in the future and uh, and going on uh, to, a, you know, a certain path. Uh, that uh, utopian uh, look of the future that Gene Roddenberry envisioned, and I think he really did help push that forward. And one last thing that just popped into my head, he and John DeLancey uh, formed a group called Alien Voices, and if you can find some of the stuff that they did, they started off with the L.A. Theater Works, and they did uh, uh, basically a stage reading of War of the Worlds, not the Orson Welles broadcast, but the actual book, and then they formed Alien Voices, which was various Star Trek actors recreating radio dramas based on some uh, classic sci-fi literature. And it was spearheaded by Leonard Nimoy and John DeLancey, and they had done some incredible work, and it was on the sci-fi channel for a while. So you were introducing 
uh, younger people to classic sci-fi. And, you know, with uh, having, you know, various Star Trek actors and all the uh, sound effects artists, the Foley artists, sharing the same stage. So it was something that you could hear and you could watch, and it was very, very entertaining. And he did such a wonderful job with that as well. So, I mean, just that voice. I mean, you know, don't think about the ears as much. Think about the voice and all the ways that he tried to educate, uh, entertain, enlighten, you know, uh, generations to come. And this this work will live on and prosper, truly. Childoftelevision.blogspot.com, childoftelevision.blogspot.com, also storysalon.com. Donna's four-part novel series is now complete. Yes, it is. The last book, Fall Again Reunion, was published a few months ago. You'll see where the story finally ends. And to find out how the story begins and end, go to fallagainseries.com. Tony and Donna, we'll see you both next time. Next Next time. An adult elephant can weigh up to six tons. The average person, 150 pounds. Ever heard of carfentanil? It's a large wild animal tranquilizer. Illegal drug dealers lace heroin with it. It can kill the average human. If you or a loved one is addicted to opiates, even pain pills... Don't wait until it's too late. Call the Detox and Treatment Helpline now. We care. Many of us have been where you are. We'll take you or a loved one away from the drug environment to a place you can clean out safely. Plus, we'll work with your insurance company to make sure you get the treatment you need. And with a Family Medical Leave Act, you're allowed by law to get away for help without telling your employer why. Call now to save a life. 866-490-3991-866-490-3991-866-490-3991. Become an advertiser or underwriter of TV Confidential and let our brand help promote your brand. To find out more, go to televisionconfidential.com slash advertise. Be part of our conversation. If you like what you hear, have thoughts on this week's program or have an idea for a future edition of TV Confidential, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at talk at tvconfidential.net, talk at tvconfidential.net. You can also message us at facebook.com forward slash tvconfidential, x.com forward slash tvconfidential, or at TV Confidential on Instagram. And if you're listening to us on the TV Confidential podcast, please be sure to hit the subscribe button. This portion of TV Confidential is brought to us by our friends at Front Porch Realty, the community of realtors in the Northern Bay area of California that is committed to finding the solution that is best for their clients. Whether you're a first-time home buyer or looking to sell or lease your property in Northern California, call Karen Strain at 415-886-7411. Or visit frontporchrealtygroup.com for more information on how they can help you.